we're just about two weeks away from Labor Day. I think it's pretty fair to say that this has been a busy summer. I dare say, even one for the record books. And I'm not talking about the weather. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. Debates are breaking out all over in school district meetings uh, on the question of mask mandates. And we'll talk about the revelation that the Albany Diocese sent priests accused of sexually abusing children to treatment centers instead of alerting law enforcement. In short, the Albany Diocese, along with all that, pretty much every diocese in the country, covered up sex abuse for decades. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. I am Casey Seiler, Editor-in-Chief of the Times Union, and here, happy to be talking with our outstanding managing editor for news, Susan Mahalik. Susan, how are you doing on this crazy news week, though not quite as crazy as last week? Well, I'm doing just great, um, especially since I heard that uh, Tropical Depression Fred has pretty much dealt us all that he's going to. So it looks like the rain is going to be moving out of the capital region. So that's something that I'm kind of happy about. Yes, we dodged a bullet. Let us turn our attention from the regional to the global. The big news, of course, over the weekend was the rapid collapse of uh, the the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan and the extreme peril being faced by not only uh, U.S. citizens and forces on the ground there, but uh, especially by uh, Afghan people, uh, especially those who have worked with the U.S. and um, global forces in the, the 20-year battle against the Taliban that is that is now over. This uh, story has had a couple of local elements, including Pete Demola's coverage um, over the weekend of the the, uh, the fears of a woman who was identified as Sunita, whose children uh, are in Afghanistan and uh, who obviously she is is gravely concerned about. Yeah, we um, learned about this story from uh, the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, which has an office in Albany. You know, it was really a harrowing story that Pete told um, on Sunday about, you know, this woman texting with her children who were in a car trying to get to the airport in Kabul. They're teenagers down to, I think the, the youngest is eight years old, and and she's very concerned about getting them out. She was able to get out on refugee status because she had uh, fled from Afghanistan to Pakistan at a previous time, and the children were with her husband's family. I believe that her husband uh, is deceased. The kids are safe right now, but they're still trying to, to get them to this country. Yeah, the the um the children are basically in the in the the custody uh, under un, under sort of Afghan law of her late husband's family, and she is of course desperate to reconnect with them and of course get them get them back to the U.S. Um, Pete followed that up 
by uh, noting that uh, that local mosques in the capital region, as well as numerous other organizations devoted to aiding refugees, are sort of standing by and eager, in fact, to assist Afghan citizens who are relocated to the U.S. Here in the capital region, of course, uh, COVID-19 unfortunately continues to be a major story. And right now it is uh, intersecting with uh, what is always a big seasonal story as we approach late August, and that's back to school. Specifically, in the absence, unfortunately, of, uh, of clear advice from the state health department, debates are breaking out all over in school district meetings uh, on the question of mask mandates and whether individual districts um, should include mask mandates as part of kind of a varied effort to knock down infections in schools. And uh, Rachel Silverstein wrote about uh, a meeting of the Shenandoah School District up, up around Clifton Park that turned uh, distinctly uh, ugly on August 10th. Yeah, there have been a, a number of meetings. Uh, it wasn't just um, in the Shen District, but there have been a few other districts where they've had sort of t- contentious meetings about whether or not the kids should be allowed to be required to wear masks. In schools, and uh, you know, since her initial reporting on that, Rachel has found out that most districts in the region are planning to implement uh, universal mask policies when schools start up. But again, there are still some school boards that are facing strong opposition from parents, and some of them have discussed plans to make masks optional. But it looks like a lot of the districts in the immediate capital region are going to be mandating that, you know, their students wear masks and then they'll they'll revisit it if infection rates start to, uh, you know, go down uh, in the coming weeks. Also, Masara Makati has reported that vaccination will be required for football and volleyball players in the Albany and Bethlehem school districts, according to um, to the plans that that those districts um, put out at midweek. Uh, b- football, of course, is a high contact sport. Volleyball is an indoor sport uh, where you obviously play in close proximity and and there's a lot of a lot of handling of the ball. So I guess that that's not at all surprising, but. Um, but I think that is the that is the first time we have seen vaccinations required for students. I could be wrong on that, but I believe that's the case. Yeah, I, th- I think that is the case, and uh, it'll be interesting to see um, what comes of other uh, you know, outdoor sports. It seems that there there's a recognition that football has a lot of you know contact, but. I don't know about you, Casey. I've seen some soccer games where people are right up in each other's faces too. So I'll be curious to see what happens with that. Turning to a, a very, very different and perhaps slightly more upbeat story, um, Chloe Callahan, uh, who is one of our outstanding Hudson Valley reporters, wrote about uh, two Frank Lloyd Wright designed homes that are for sale on a private island that's about 10 acres in Putnam County. 
you know, there's a lot of talk about stories that are effectively shelter porn. In other words, gorgeous shots of real estate. And this is absolutely a triple X shelter porn. These houses are completely gorgeous and they look like a, a, a slightly nicer version of the type of uh, kind of high modernist house you might see a, a Bond villain uh, working out of. Yeah, as somebody who's visited Taliesin not too long ago, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright uh, property out in Arizona. So I was thrilled that our, our Hudson Valley friends uh, un- unearthed this and shared it with the world. And there's a bit of a controversy surrounding it because the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation recognizes uh, this house, which is known as the Massaro House, as being inspired by Wright, uh, which is a step down from, you know, Taliesin or Falling Water uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, because it was built, according to Wright's plans, but built after his death. There's apparently kind of a, a, a classic kind of art versus commerce debate uh, surrounding that that's pretty fascinating. Nonetheless, I I would take either of these properties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll be happy to live in a Wright-inspired house as opposed to one that was uh, an according to Hoyle, you know, Wright design. Meanwhile, closer to home, going from uh, going from beautiful design to uh, bad clothing or bad wardrobe, we once again have the return of the crew for HBO's uh, upcoming Watergate drama. The White House plumbers, and they've been working down in the the state capitol complex, specifically in the in the LOB. Uh, it stars Woody Harrelson and Justin Theroux as uh, uh, White House, uh, you know, Nixon era rascals Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy. We have a gallery of just fantastic photos from Will Waldron and Lori Van Buren uh, of people walking around in the most hideous early 70s brown suits you could ever imagine. (laughs) What I want to know, Casey, is if you had seen Woody Harrelson pedaling his bicycle on the streets of Albany, would you have known it was Woody Harrelson? Maybe not. I mean, Woody, you know, Woody Harrelson, I guess, is distinctive, but he also just looks like a, you know, a fairly fairly normal looking middle-aged guy. In other words, I, I think I would probably recognize Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman to use two other, you know, Watergate connected actors on the street. Uh, speaking, speaking of uh, the story of a chief executive who is forced to resign uh, in the teeth of uh, impeachment, let us of course turn our attention to what I think it's fair to say is probably going to be the biggest story of the year. That is the the resignation of Andrew Cuomo, um, which uh, is scheduled to occur as of this recording um, on Monday night, specifically at midnight on Monday going into Tuesday. And Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul will will take the reins. We had, of course, an excellent story from Josh Solomon and Brendan Lyons last Sunday talking about what Cuomo's uh, legacy is going to be, that, of course, it, uh, it, it will involve big accomplishments like the passage of marriage equality in 2011, a lot of big uh, infrastructure projects, the Moynihan Train Hall, and, of course, the, the bridge that is named after his father, but, of course, a lot of ethical troubles, uh, all of which just metastasized over the course of the last year. I mean, a remarkable reversal from 
a year ago when essentially Cuomo was being hailed as America's governor, when he had secured $5 million for his, uh, his COVID memoir, American Crisis. Watching him, you know, during the, the COVID crisis and those daily briefings, you know, for a long time, I, I thought he was like in the zone. And then it, it, it appeared to me that he was, you know, having briefings when they weren't necessarily needed and he would go on and on. And I thought, you know, why isn't someone reining this guy in? It's clear that he operated that way, you know, in his day to day, that there were people around him that should have been like telling him, hey, dude, you just don't do that. And apparently there, you know, nobody felt they could they could say that to this guy. And it's another example of, you know, somebody brought down by hubris. He doesn't even recognize what he was doing wrong. Yeah, there's a there's a classic line from um, the movie Scarface, which is uh, the advice, don't get high on your own supply. When you think of how many of the scandals that came to envelop him, you know, came during or uh, or out of this period of great adulation, they all occurred during this period when Cuomo was at or near the top of his game. And you just wonder if this is the case of someone who started, as they say, believing his own press clippings. Yeah, I think Paul Grandal's column this week where, you know, he described his fall as, as being, you know, like Shakespearean. I thought that he did a really good job of describing that because I was like, yeah, that's exactly what this is. Yeah, Paul noted in that column that he is in his career, which is a, a long and uh, acclaimed one, he has only been F-bombed three times. And uh, Cuomo was one of them when the governor called him up upset about a story that Paul had written. I think it was a column that he had written about greeting the public uh, on New Year's Day at the governor's mansion. And the governor did not appreciate it. And he uh, unloaded on Paul. So that is, it's a, it's a terrific piece from somebody who, you know, covered Mario and, and then went on to cover Andrew too. Yeah, I know. I was in the office the day that Paul got that call and he was like holding the phone out from his ear. It was pretty funny, you know, from, from the, you know, the perspective of a colleague of Paul's in the newsroom. Susan, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And thanks as always for all the great work. All right. Nice chatting with you, Case. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. After the break, the former bishop of the Albany Roman Catholic Diocese admitted to shielding priests accused of sexual abuse. I am Casey Seiler, we'll editor of the Times Union. McKinley, who broke Join us for story. an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. At the end of July, the Times Union reported that the former leader of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany, Bishop Howard Hubbard, admitted that it sent priests who sexually abused children to private treatment programs rather than contacting law enforcement. Reporter Ed McKinley broke the story just before the end of his year-long Hearst Fellowship. It was a part of a series he'd written on the Child Victims Act what and the cases the that it brought about and against and why the church and others. Sure. So, I caught up uh, with him before he left to discuss his reporting. An exploration of the 300 or so Child Victims Act lawsuits that have been filed against the Diocese of Albany. The reporting on the CBA and all the lawsuits against the different organizations, be it the church, the Boy Scouts, schools, summer camps, all these different groups. That was something that I really latched on to early on in my time at the TU. And I found those stories to be really rewarding to work on. Um, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know, you've, you've heard about the broader awakening that our society's had about child abuse, be it the Spotlight movie that won Best Picture and the Pulitzer Prize for the newspaper articles in 2002 and, and the laws that have come from that. But honestly, I think as much attention as it has gotten is still not as much as it really deserved. And that's something that, that I've sort of become alert to the more I've reported on this. So it was important to me to write a sort of bird's eye view story that took in the full scope of what was going on based on the information that we have. There was so many, there was so much coverage where it was like lawsuit filed against X priest lawsuit filed against Y priest. Like there was just trip, 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 trip. And I thought it was important that someone take the time to go through all of those lawsuits and all the records that were attached to it and say, okay, we have all these individual stories but what is the pattern here? What is the information that we can synthesize between all of these different stories? Um, so that's what I did. I took I took about a month, um, built a really big spreadsheet, read a lot of records, um, did a lot of interviews, and, and put together what I could what I could figure out. So tell me, we talked about one of your earlier installments of the story in which you kind of took a look at the closing of the look back window. But the last story you wrote was some revelatory stuff about Bishop Howard Hubbard, the longtime uh, head of the Albany Diocese. What was the story there? In short, the Albany Diocese, along with I'll add pretty much every diocese in the country, covered up sex abuse for decades when they found out about that one of their priests had abused a kid they would keep it quiet they wouldn't tell the authorities sometimes they wouldn't even tell the parents they would send the priest to treatment they had these private treatment facilities there's one right by toronto there's a famous one in new mexico and then these treatment facilities would there would be a doctor and they'd say Oh, we don't think he's going to reoffend again. I have a record from one priest, for instance, where it says, you know, if he's supervised properly, we think there's a low likelihood for him to reoffend. Um, so then the priests get reassigned. Um, they return to positions of trust in the community. Still, no one is told about this. The church now says, we understand that's the wrong thing to do, but it's their position that, that they were making choices based on the best information available at the time. So, yeah, the story in some sense is revelatory because it's gotten a big reaction from people. So clearly the information wasn't sort of publicly understood the extent of this organized cover up going on at the diocese, but it was 
just sitting there in public court records. I mean, they've kind of alluded to it in public statements before, but I think it was just important for, for someone. And I was happy to do it to, to say, Hey, this was, this was a chronic thing. This was hundreds of priests. We don't know how many were sent to treatment that wouldn't answer that question. And a lot of these guys, after they return from, from treatment, there are then further abuse allegations after that. When I sent to Hubbard, Hubbard, former bishop, and his lawyers all the evidence that I collected and asked them to respond to a series of questions, Hubbard just you know, said in his statement, yeah, it was our practice for decades to send treat, priests to treatment and to, uh, and to return them to ministry upon the advice of doctors. Did you expect him to say that? I mean, yeah, like without getting too inside baseball-y, like the story wasn't even originally written with that as sort of the lead. First of all, they've alluded to it in the past. So it's like the extent of it, that it was common practice isn't out there, but they've said, you know, there were instances of this happening. But yeah, like I have, you know, memos with Hubbard's signature on them, corresponding back and forth with a doctor at a treatment facility outside Toronto about a priest who was an admitted child abuser. So then like when I send him that and ask him questions about it, he kind of has no choice but to but to respond to it. Wow. Now, Hubbard himself is accused of abusing minors as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. There are seven people who have filed lawsuits alleging that Hubbard personally abused kids. He denies that. You know, his common refrain is just, these haven't been vetted. They're just allegations made in a courtroom. I mean, seven individuals is a lot. Um, I have a letter that Hubbard wrote for the Diocese Confidential File on one of their priests back in the 80s. Uh, his name's Joseph Romano. He's one of the most common priests listed in CBA lawsuits. Um, he's on the Diocese list of, list of offenders. And uh, Hubbard said, you know, to paraphrase, he's like, I keep getting all these all these stories about this guy abusing kids and none of them appear to be connected and there's no evidence of them colluding. So how am I supposed to do anything but take this very seriously? And I would suggest that given seven different lawsuits against the, the bishop, we should follow his own advice and take them, take them very seriously and, and vet them. Did you talk to the current bishop, Scharfenberger, about any of this? Did he have a reaction? Does he Has he had a reaction in the past? I, I requested an interview with the bishop earlier this summer, and it was basically communicated to me that the diocese wasn't interested in making the bishop available for an interview. The diocese response to this was basically that was then and this is now. There's new leadership. They've got background checks. They're trying to handle this. They've got they're taking proactive steps to to support people that come to them with abuse allegations. So yeah, that's their that's their basic stance is that they're they're trying to grow from this and and do better. Right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. 
The Eagle is a production of The Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help this week from Lori Todd and The Times Union digital team. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Ed McKinley for their reporting and contribution to this episode.